Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called The Reformation at 500, an Eastern Orthodox View. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 29th, 2017. As you probably know, for the month of October, we're remembering the Reformation, 500 years, with guest essays from five traditions, Catholic, Reformed, Anglican, Lutheran, and Orthodox. This week's essay, from an Orthodox perspective, is by the very Reverend Archpriest Andrew Stephen Damick. He's pastor of St. Paul Orthodox Church of Emmaus, Pennsylvania, author of a book called Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy, another book called An Introduction to God, as well as a forthcoming book called Bearing God. He's also host of the podcasts Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy, and a second podcast called Roads from Emmaus, both of which are on the Ancient Faith Radio. Finally, he's co-host of the Areopagus podcast, and a frequent speaker at lectures and retreats, both in parishes and in other settings. The Reformation at 500, an Eastern Orthodox view, by the very Reverend Archpriest Andrew Damick. Martin Luther's Reformation turns 500 this month, and I honestly think he would have been surprised to see it last this long, not so much because his initial project of reforming the Church of Rome would have been realized by now, but rather because he thought that the world was probably going to end soon back in his day. Well, it's 2017, and a lot has happened in Protestantism's five centuries. As an Orthodox Christian, it would be easy for me to peer over the wall between East and West and condescendingly cast a glance at the egg that Rome laid. That's certainly how some Orthodox writers have seen Protestantism's myriad denominations and movements. That is, they are the fruit of a schism that was already about five centuries old when Rome broke from the Orthodox East in the year 1154. A similar sentiment was expressed by the Russian writer Alexis Komiakov, who famously quipped that the Pope was the first Protestant, and also that all Protestants are crypto-papists, that is, seeing both as rebels against the holy tradition of the ancient church. That Roman Catholics and Protestants are two sides of the same coin has become axiomatic in many orthodox treatments of Western Christianity, a coin for making purchases in a theological black market, where false doctrines are traded without regard to the universal traditions of Christendom that predated this great schism of the 11th century. I have struggled with these views myself, as two decades ago I began trying to understand the differences between the evangelicalism of my childhood and the orthodoxy I chose as a college student. Setting up Western Christians, especially Protestants, as over there was convenient and even comforting, and it was even easier to see them as basically responsible for their schism from the Orthodox Church, however many removes away. And yet, except for a few exceptions, most Christians alive who were not part of the Orthodox Church today 
did not choose to be out of communion with it. Most of them aren't even aware that it exists. They are the inheritors of schism. For us, that's bad. But for most Protestantism, schism isn't even a thing. They don't usually think of church bodies as being in or out of communion, or have any sense that a break with church leadership could put you outside the church. Don't get me wrong, though. As an Orthodox Christian, I think that it's worth offering some critiques for the Reformation and its heirs. I wrote several chapters in my book, Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy, that are dedicated to that project. The Reformation effectively killed ecclesiology, for one thing. The magisterial churches still retain a semblance of ecclesiology, but its working out is mainly an administrative question rather than a sacramental one, or one of apostolic authority. Who is in communion with whom is basically about whose doctrines and practices are not distorted too much in comparison to one's own. Yet there are groups in communion whose doctrine and worship barely resemble each other. For example, just what is it that keeps a conservative Evangelical Lutheran Church of America Lutheran convinced that he ought to be sharing communion with someone like the Episcopal Church USA's John Shelby Spong. As you, and you can imagine going down to the local megachurch and asking which churches they're in communion with. The question would not even make sense. And without much ecclesiology, defining someone as a heretic is a mostly pointless exercise in saying that you disagree or that he can't be hired in your denomination. Ejecting someone from a Protestant denomination doesn't give anyone the idea that there's a real anathema in play, where people start to worry about their salvation. And without that ecclesiology, there are really no limits to what sola scriptura can be made to do. The Bible is authoritative, yes, but who's reading of it? I once attended a kind of public debate between a representative of the Presbyterian Church USA and the much more conservative breakaway Covenant Order of Evangelical Presbyterians denomination, in which the latter accused the former of not respecting Scripture. But the former said he did respect it. So who decides between them? The Reformation still has no answer to that question. I also believe that the de-churching of the Reformation led to what philosopher Charles Taylor called an excarnation of Christian faith, in which Christianity becomes more about beliefs than anything else. That's why almost anything calling itself worship is acceptable for most Protestants, so long as the quote-unquote message is the same. Although most would never do it, there is effectively no argument against using death metal music in church. If the lyrics are good, well, why not? And yet, we are in this gospel thing together. In this world where the transcendent is harder to bring into our imminent lives. We may lay that at the feet of the Reformation's excarnation, 
yet all of us are experiencing it. In fact, we are all heirs of the Reformation. And on a personal level, I myself am an heir of the Reformation. The first 22 years of my life were spent in evangelicalism, as the son of missionaries. I could pretend I'm over all that now, that my Protestant past is simply renounced, but that would be foolish of me to say that it made no impact on me. Of course it affected me, and it was largely for the better. From my parents and various teachers throughout my childhood, I learned to love Jesus Christ, to love the scriptures, and to seek higher things over worldly ones. I also learned that engagement with the culture is part of what it means to be Christian. The apostles were precisely sent into the world by Jesus, not to build fortresses from whose battle, battlements we throw down taunts, Monty Python style, that we've already got as the holy grail that the world is seeking, but rather so we will bring the world into the church. And there are some parts of evangelicalism, especially, that are really trying to do that, even if their gospel proclamation is not all that it ought to be from an orthodox point of view. I also admire the vitality and dedication of many Protestants, especially their creativity in telling others about Jesus, whom they love. The Orthodox of today often are not interested in creativity, even when it's consistent with our tradition. My honest hope for the Reformation is that all Christians would be gathered into the Orthodox Church, because I believe that it is uniquely the Church of Jesus Christ. But I don't think we Orthodox can proclaim that hope triumphalistically if we've got any hope of it coming to pass. If a Protestant loves Jesus Christ, believes that he is both God and man, and believes in the Holy Trinity as written in the Nicene Creed, then we have most crucial things in common. That is not all there is to it. There are differences that matter and have eternal implications. But if someone loves my Christ, then I want to know him and his faith better. I won't sit back and decide whether the Reformation ought to have happened. Certainly, I think Luther and other Reformers had some well-founded grievances with Rome. But I also don't have a dog in that fight. I am not Protestant or Roman Catholic. The authenticity of my church's existence is not at stake there. But the Reformation did happen. I don't think it's useful to blame people who are currently alive for the actions of those who have been dead for centuries. The question is what we do now. So here's what I think we Orthodox should do now, and I hope that Protestants may join us. We should have earnest discussions, especially informally, about both similarities and differences with integrity and love we should avoid both polemic and compromise. We should also know each other better and stand in wonder at the ways people are seeking to connect with God, even if we don't agree with them. We can appreciate and interpret doctrines and practices that are not our own, even while we critique them. Why? Those who believe and practice those things are precisely people meaning that Christ desires them for his church. And if they are already believers in Jesus Christ, 
and we should rejoice in their love for him, even if it does not look exactly like our own. And finally, we should invite all of humanity, but especially other Christians, into the inheritance of the church fathers, especially people like Ignatius of Antioch, who received the faith from the Apostle John. Because of its broad and deep influence, all of us in the modern world are heirs of the Reformation. But all Christians are also heirs of the Holy Fathers, who received the faith and canonized and interpreted Scripture. This is an inheritance that is deep and rich, and will not disappoint any who seek Christ with a humble spirit. The Reformation 500 years, that's an Eastern Orthodox perspective by the very reverent archpriest Andrew Stephen Damick. For books this week, we go to France. Bernard-Henri Lévy, The Genius of Judaism. New York Random, 2017. This book is 240 pages long. Philosopher, journalist, political activist, filmmaker, and author of dozens of books, he's France's most prominent public intellectual, known there with his simple three initials, B-H-L. Bernard-Henri Lévy is fabulously rich, telegenic, and close friends with the most powerful. He owns restaurants, a soccer team, a line of vodka, and, it just had to be, a perfume that's called With Love from Bernard Henri. He's an intellectual provocateur of prodigious learning. His third wife was a famous French actress and singer. His current liaison is the fashionista Daphne Guinness, so, exactly how seriously we should take Levy is a question that has dogged his controversial career for decades. Well, this book does not provide any answers. The essence of this book, he says, is the search for and defense of a certain idea of man and God, of history and time, of power, voice, light, sovereignty, revolt, memory, and nature. After surveying what he calls the new guises of anti-Semitism, Holocaust deniers, competitive victimhood, and Israel as a problem, then the contributions of Jews to French society, and the meaning of Jewish election or exceptionalism, the second half of the book considers the story of Jonah as a paradigm for a modern, secular Judaism. In Jonah, Levy sees the secret universal. He says we must stand in the shadow of Nineveh, modern-day Mosul, and commit ourselves to the other. Levy has zero interest in theological orthodoxy of any sort, which he would construe as mere cynicism. He doesn't pray or follow dietary laws. He rarely goes to synagogue. The genius of Judaism, in his view, is the book 
in the books, in its broad and deep history of critical disputation. For Levy, we are not called to believe anything. Rather, we are called to study and to act. He repudiates the famous wager of faith of his fellow Frenchman Pascal. He doesn't mention him, but Levy sounds like Descartes, for whom man is very much a thinking being. Levy has cast the essence of Judaism very much in his own intellectual image. He's more interested in the God of the philosophers than in what most religious Jews would understand as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He describes himself as having been a, a de-Judaized Jew in so tepidly Jewish until his 1967 visit to Israel. In this book, he says he stands tall as proudly Jewish and offers his unambiguous embrace of what he calls an affirmational Judaism. The French intellectual Bernard-Henri Levy, the genius of Judaism. For movies this week, a remarkable documentary, which I highly recommend, it's called Becoming Warren Buffett, from the year 2000. 17. The stories about Warren Buffett, who was born in 1930, as a regular Joe, are by now well known. He filed his first tax return when he was 13, after jobs that included a paper route, 500 customers, and selling gum and coke door to door. He's lived in Omaha most of his life, and in the same modest house since 1958. Almost every day, he eats the same breakfast at the McDonald's drive-thru. The stories about his wealth, with a net worth of $73 billion, and his intellect, he reads five to six hours every day, are similarly well-known. But what's less well-known, and what drives this HBO documentary, is how Buffett has worked at understanding and making peace with his own imperfect self in trying to make changes for the better. According to his three children and his first wife, Susie, and by his own admission, for most of his life, Buffett was emotionally aloof. My dad is a solitary guy, says one of his sons. He was more comfortable with numbers than with people. And he's way smart enough to know that's not a compliment but his wife Susie humanized him, and this film gives him, and especially her, credit. Even at the age of 87, he is still becoming Warren Buffett. An HBO documentary, very interesting. For poetry this week, we've posted a 12th century illuminated manuscript called Codex Calixtus. The Codex is a 12th century illuminated manuscript that was used to be attributed to the Pope, although now scholars think it was attributed to a French scholar. It was written to help pilgrims on their way on the Camino Santiago. And in fact, when my wife and I walked the Camino Santiago in 2012, 
Almost every morning, we said this prayer together before we set off. God, you called your servant Abraham from Ur in Chaldea, watching over him in all his wanderings, and guided the Hebrew people as they crossed the desert. Guard these you guard these your children, who, for the love of your name, make a pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. Be their companion on the way, their guide at the crossroads, their strength in weariness their defense in dangers, their shelter on the path, their shade in the heat, their light in darkness, their comfort in discouragement, and the firmness of their intentions, that through your guidance they may arrive safely at the end of their journey, and, enriched with grace and virtue, may return to their homes filled with salutary and lasting joy. A 12th Century Pilgrim's Prayer. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October the 29th, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.